Hello, and welcome to Relevate Presents Scholars Ship, the podcast where we use real research to analyze, scrutinize, and humanize your favorite TV and movie couples. I'm your host, Eric Goodcase. Hello, and welcome to a special Across the Pond edition of Relevate Presents Scholarship. We're going to be talking about the show Sex Education. Uh, It's on Netflix. And we have a couple of guests joining us today, so two guests for the price of one. Our first guest is a PhD candidate for an applied family science at Kansas State University, Shelby Assel. Thanks for joining us, Shelby. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And also joining us is the Twitter-famous uh, Duchess Sexpert from Wouldn't You Like to Know University, who is a PhD candidate in psychology. Duchess, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. And also with us, as always, is the Statler to my Waldorf, uh, Dr. Denzel Jones. Denzel, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? It's uh, <laughs> It's been a long time coming to get to this point, but uh, we're finally here. So Finally here. We're back. Uh, happy New Year. It's uh, well into the New Year, but Happy New Year to all the listeners. So let's start us off by getting to know our guests a little bit better. So um, Shelby, we'll start with you in terms of uh, what are your research interests? What kind of got you into this? What's kind of, what are you passionate about? So just kind of give a little introduction uh, to the listeners. Yeah. So I study primarily how parents or caregivers talk to their kids about sex and also how we can make that be like as helpful and supportive as possible and foster the most positive outcomes for kids. I got into this because growing up, I did not have good socialization around sexuality. There's a lot of shame and fear and confusion and going to school. And when I realized like we can study social things that happen, I was like, oh, we can, I can study this and make things better, hopefully for new generations of kids. That really sparked my interest. So that passion from like growing up with not so great socialization is really what fuels what I do now. And yeah, that's what I care about. That's what I study. Yeah, I'm glad you bring some of this to the forefront. We'll get more into what those positive outcomes are and why shame doesn't do a really good job of getting to those positive outcomes. So that's our preview for later. Uh, How about you, Duchess? What is your kind of research interest? What kind of things do you kind of look at? What makes you so passionate about it? So I'm really interested in how social learning may affect sexual function physiologically. So a lot of women, up to 40% of women will experience some type of sexual dysfunction in their lifetime. And when I read that statistic, I was just overwhelmed and I wanted to help in some way. So the more I dug, the more I realized that physiological pain during sex is a big problem for a lot of women. So I'm specifically interested in how negative feedback and negative social learning about sex and sexuality may result in idiopathic provoked pain in women. Excellent. Yes. And talking about socialization around sex and how we're educated around sex is the perfect way to think about this show. It's a show that I have really enjoyed. It's also a show that is an emotional roller coaster for me. I'm very emotionally affected by television shows. And this is one that gets to me a lot uh, in a good way and a more um, intense way sometimes. So let's start in terms of like how we got introduced to the show when we started watching it. And Shelby, we'll start with you. When did you start watching the show? What's your relationship like with the, with the show Sex Education? Uh, I watched it when it first came out. I think I was working on a grant that was teaching kids relationship and sex education. And I think everyone on the team started talking about it. And then also it popped up on my Netflix. And I was like, 
oh, that sounds like something I should watch. I don't even care like what it actually is about. I should probably watch it. So, and then um, fell in love with it. So I watched all the seasons like as they were coming out. And then before this podcast, I watched them like within like a two week period, like the whole th- or three seasons. So then that was a different emotional roller coaster seeing that all like come together. Yeah, very, a a lot of empathy for what like the feelings and emotions that the characters go through in the show. So yeah, especially the last episode of season three was definitely had to like take a little bit and just like cry before I could move on to other parts of my life. I'm with you. I do a lot of that kind of speed watching for this podcast and it sometimes is just very intense. This show and a few other shows have just been, oh, this is a lot to watch back to back to back to back. Mm -hmm. So Duchess, how about you? What's your relationship like with the show? When did you hear about it? What got you into it? I think I watched it when it first came out. I remember it being in my Netflix recommended and I was like, well, that piques my interest. And then immediately fell in love with the characters. They're so endearing, especially Maeve. I find her very relatable. Surprise, surprise. And then I just binge watch every season when it comes out. And then You know, we discussed that we were going to do this podcast. I watched three seasons in about two weeks. And like you guys said, it was an emotional roller coaster. I got reattached to the characters all over again. And now I'm eagerly awaiting season four. Yeah, I'm really, I'm excited as well. I won't go too much into uh, what got me started watching the show because it's very similar to Shelby because we're probably in similar conversations uh, as we were doing the same curriculum for um, relationship education. But I actually did not get through the first season on my first watch through. So spoiler, I mean, this whole podcast is a spoiler alert. So in like episode five or six, when Eric gets assaulted, I stopped watching. I just, I didn't want to watch it anymore. Just working as like a therapist sometimes, I just don't like a lot of really intense shows. Like I have to watch things just for kind of fun outside of doing the podcast. So I stopped watching for a while, even though I really enjoyed the show up until that point. And then we talked about doing... Uh, the show for this podcast, I kind of powered through the more difficult parts. Really, really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. And just the overall premise in general is great. Did you guys ever see that movie, Charlie Bartlett? I don't remember anything from it. But it was like a similar concept in terms of a teenager doing kind of like therapy things. And I remember not caring for that movie all that much, except there was lots of Degrassi characters on it. So I loved that part. But this show really got me hooked, especially now that I you know, sometimes am a therapist and have engaged in doing actual real sex therapy. So that's kind of where I've been at with it. I know the answer to this question, but just for the sake of the uh, audience knowing the answer to this question, Denzel, have you seen the show before? So uh, actually, I didn't think that I had saw this show. Okay. Until you all started talking. And then I was like, wait a minute. So I started quickly Googling things and I was like, huh. And then Eric, I don't think you remember this. Because we like recommend so many different things in like so many different areas, and then a lot of stuff just falls through the holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually watched this the first season when it first came out, and okay. this was around the time like where we were first starting to get into the like the podcast really serious. And I was like, yeah. "Hey, Eric, we need to like do this episode at some point." And it was just kind of one of those things that fell through the crack, right? And so I guess here we are today. And so here like we are. I don't know if you remember having that conversation at all. But Not at all. No, I did watch the first season. I haven't watched the uh, the remaining pieces. You might have been who told me about because I still can't remember how I heard about it. it was either someone um, in the project Shelby and I were discussing, or it was from you or someone else. So I don't really know where, where I heard about it. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, I guess I got interested in it as I was scrolling through Netflix on my rare occasions of scrolling through Netflix and. I guess the honest truth is I saw a black kid and I thought they dressed nice. So I would watch it and see what it was about. Um, there you go. 
but as I was watching it, I I really enjoyed and appreciate it. And that's when I was like, Eric, like we got to do something with this. So, yeah. Well, now we're gonna spoil the the, the two seasons that you haven't seen, but hopefully it'll get you um, interested in watching them. So let's get into it. So the way we're going to kind of do this going through just for uh, audience sake is we're going to go character by character just because there's so much that happens over the course of a TV show that it would be impossible to try to like navigate all three seasons. And, you know, it's it's certainly not going to be an all encompassing look at everything just because we don't have the time. And you probably don't want to listen to a 12 hour podcast on it, which I'm sure we could probably hit at some point. So let's start by just going character by character. And the character that I think we think of the most being the one that's the main character would be Otis. So when we first meet Otis, we learn about him, his relationship with his mother, his mother being a sex therapist, and him kind of being rather anonymous at school. And then over the course, we see his confidence change and him kind of like start doing the sex therapy clinic out of the um, abandoned bathroom in the back of the school, locker room or whatever it was. So Shelby, we'll start with you, especially considering... His sex education is probably going to be a little bit different through his parents than maybe the typical teenager. What were your kind of impressions of Otis? What kind of things did you see uh, as his character developed? Yeah, it was funny watching all those seasons so close together because you kind of forget by the end how it started with him being like very like insecure and like unsure of himself and then going through and feeling really anxious about like not being able to masturbate and having all this like anxiety about sex to then being we see at the end he's like very confident and is like talking to people at the hospital about their like deep feelings about fertility and things so my favorite thing about Otis is just seeing like his relationship with his mom um that's kind of where I hone in but like Otis got and we don't see it but I'm assuming that like all growing up he got very like normalizing messages from his mom about sexuality and bodies and throughout she like is very good at being like yeah sex is about pleasure and like I want you to be able to enjoy your body and like I want you to have a safe space for these things so Otis like and then even when we see um lots of things going on at school Otis has like a lot of knowledge around them he's like no, this is not a chlamydia outbreak. This is just like mass hysteria. No, you cannot catch chlamydia through breathing the same air as someone who has chlamydia. Like he just like knows so much like background information. I definitely thought that was going to be like a COVID storyline when I first saw it because I didn't know the context of when those episodes were released. And then when they started talking about chlamydia, I thought that was just so funny. Yeah, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that definitely takes on a new... I didn't even think about that because, yeah, I think that did come out before COVID. So masks will take on a whole new uh, like meaning for us watching it now. But yeah, Otis has this background of like knowledge and beliefs about like from his mom of like it's normal. And then I really like that it shows at the end of the first season, Otis is feeling like a lot of shame. And he I'm pretty sure he says the words like I'm broken, something's wrong with me, because I'm a teenage boy, and I can't masturbate. And his mom is like, No, you're not you're normal. There's nothing wrong with you. I just like that he has been exposed to this, but we don't always apply like it's just different when it's something that's happening to us, right? Like, I know that like I talk even like with my therapist, I'll be like, if anyone else was telling me about this, I'd be like, you're normal, you're not broken. But when it's me, I'm like, I'm so broken. You know, like it's, I don't know, I just, it's cool to see an example of him having such a good foundation of normalizing sex positive, sex education, but the way that his mom goes about it isn't always sex positive, which 
we can get into if we want to. Yeah, I was going to just say, I really like that you brought this up because this is something that gets like casually said to me a lot. So, you know, I'm a relationship researcher and therapist. My wife is also a relationship researcher and therapist. And people think that we have the best relationship ever. And while that might be true, we also have plenty of things that like we do that we would never tell our clients to do, or we would never say is good practice. Like, you know, it's just, we're all human and we have our own stuff that comes up. And that's really true for Otis. And when we first meet Otis, we're just like, wow, for a person who has a pretty open parent in terms of talking about sex, he seems really like shameful or whatever that we might think about him. But he also like, we can still see that he knows a lot of this stuff. And he acts like intellectually or logically, he knows like, you know, this isn't abnormal or this is normal. Like, you know, you're not a freak because of this, or he has a lot of like knowledge that's based in some of this kind of openness and sex positivity, but he certainly um, has his own stuff as well. And the same could be said for Jean in the sense of she has lots of things that she knows and understands well, and some things she doesn't do as well. And I don't know, it sounds like you were building to that. So I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about Jean uh, Shelby in terms of her role. Yes, I do have thoughts. So yeah, Jean is really good at sending normalizing messages that celebrate sexual pleasure. But we see like, I think a big thing throughout the first season was like her crossing boundaries and not respecting Otis's privacy or when he didn't want to talk and when he did want to talk and her like going in and washing his sheets after he had a wet dream when he told her not to go into his room. And like, I think she shows up to a party that he's at. (laughs) Um, So, and she gets better with that throughout the series. But I was listening to a podcast actually this morning about how this phenomenon of sharenting where parents like film themselves giving their kids a sec, like talking about what sex is and then like post it on social media, which I find deeply problematic, but like this idea and they're in the videos, they're telling their kids like, no, it's not a shameful thing. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. So like, that's why we're putting it out there. But then the kid is like, feeling really awkward. And it's this idea of like, you can't just like tell people, no, this isn't a shameful thing. So like, stop feeling shame about it, which I feel like is, it just made me think of Jean and Otis sometimes of how she's like, no, it's good. Open communication is good and normal. And like, it's normal for you to be having like, different struggles with sexuality. But then it's like part of sex positivity is respecting people's autonomy and boundaries and privacy. So then we kind of think sometimes like, oh, this is what we should be doing. But Otis is the one who's not receiving that like sex positive info. But we forget that children and teenagers are human beings with autonomy that we need to respect. So I just think seeing that was something I like really picked up on this time watching it. And we see that like when Jean does step back and respect his boundaries, Otis like comes to her multiple times for support and help. So I thought that was an important thing of like, we can send normalizing messages and be like, no, we don't need to have shame about this. But we have to acknowledge people still feel shame and just saying it's not shameful isn't going to take away the shame, but we can help normalize and support and validate. But don't erase people's feelings, I guess. I don't know if I'm saying that in the best way, but yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. And I think about it too, almost like ignoring the greater context of society. And because society has so many weird messages about sex, we can't pretend like they don't exist. We're trying to either rebel against them or to kind of like make comments against them. And just to 
be sensitive to where Otis is at and his, and, you know, being a teenager is just awkward in general. And on top of it, this kind of like extra layer and not being sensitive to who he is and, you know, what he's going through. Duchess, did you have anything to add in terms of just kind of either things related to Otis as a character or anything that uh, Shelby has been talking about? Yeah, I think maybe a way to say what Shelby was trying to say, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but there's a difference between shame and privacy. And I don't think as a society, we do a good job of understanding that something can be private without being shameful. And I think that's something that Otis really struggles with is that I don't think he is ashamed of being a sexual being. I think he might be a little bit ashamed of that he's not performing at the level that he would like to perform. But his mom, Jean, doesn't seem to understand that he can be sex positive and be private. And with the TikTok videos that you just described, which I haven't seen, that's horrible. It sounds like these parents don't understand that there's a difference between being sex positive and not having shame and having privacy. And sex is ultimately quite intimate and it's quite private and there's nothing shameful about that aspect of it. And as a society, we need to do a better job of recognizing that it is a private thing without making it a shameful thing. And it's a difficult balance to strike. And I'm even thinking about, you know, when I have, uh, so my human sexuality class, when I have them, you know, we have them write a paper about their own values and I have them have discussions around different topics. And, you know, you have to be very clear about, you know, for some people who aren't as comfortable with that, it almost sounds like you're telling me to talk about something so private and making it public. And, you know, you still have that right to privacy. You can still talk about, you know, what you're comfortable with while still being able to kind of like talk about concepts in a more academic way. So it's definitely a difficult balance to strike and it can be difficult. And like, you know, I have situations where I have students who might be the most uncomfortable or still figuring things out. And then I'm not sure how to, where to put the boundaries for that. Like they're just either, I don't know how far to go, how far not to go. And it can be really uncomfortable. And that certainly happens in other contexts as well. Oh, there's something else you mentioned that I think is really important in terms of you mentioned kind of Otis not feeling like he's performing at the level that he wants to be. I don't know if either of you want to talk about that in terms of like performance and social expectations around kind of like male sexuality, or if you have thoughts on that, go for it. So um, there's a fantastic couple of papers. One is by Golden and colleagues, and one is by, uh, I think it's Krieger and colleagues. And they look at the effects socially that adolescent boys and girls experience when they become more sexually active. And they found that girls typically experience a decrease in social prowess, while boys typically experience an increase in sexual prowess, and they gain popularity as they become more sexually active. So I would imagine that, you know, Otis subconsciously or consciously is aware that being sexual would increase his social value, if you will. So I would imagine he feels some level of pressure to perform and to cross these sexual development milestones. And I think the pressure may be greater on males than females, but that is not my area of study. So I can't comment on that. But I do imagine that the increase in social prowess does weigh heavily on Otis. Yeah, and there's certainly something to be said, too, if we look at just kind of the sexual uh, functioning disorders that we think of that are most associated with males versus ones we most associate with like cis females and thinking about how social messages play into that. And we think about we think about sexual functioning disorders for males, uh, cis males, we often think about, you know, erectile dysfunction, or we often think about uh, premature ejaculation. And those are both kind of like seen in society as kind of these performance related 
issues, right? Like you need to be doing well, you have to be an expert or knowledgeable, you have to be a sex god or whatever those pressures exist. Uh, And those are very related. And then physiologically, they're related too, because the parts of the brain and body that are associated with anxiety are also related to not having an erection. So that can play a very big role for lots of people. And then, you know, obviously we'll talk about uh, how that plays a role for um, females and sexual functioning disorders later. But definitely in terms of male, there's a lot of like messages about males needing to be knowledgeable and like know everything about sex and be studs or whatever words are actually used. I don't think anyone uses the word stud anymore. That seems very dated. Um, I think BDE is taking that place. I think that's the new, the new term that the kids are saying. But there's lots of like pressure around that. And it seems like the functioning disorders that we think of are often kind of related. Shelby, do you have any thoughts either on what we just talked about or on Otis or on Otis and Gene or anything related to that? I guess I just wanted to highlight that other than crossing boundary and Duchess, I really like how you said like the we need privacy and you can be private and still be sex positive. But I really applaud Jean for how she communicates in like a very shame-free way. Like she talks about sex like she talks about any other everyday topic and doesn't make it feel weird or need to like go off into like a like room and sit down and have a very serious conversation. Like it's just like part of everyday conversations and like that is what leads to better outcomes. And that's what like when we ask adolescents and young adults what they wish parents were like, they wish that talking to parents about sex was more of a conversation. And I do think that Jean gets a little bit into lecture mode sometimes, which isn't the best, but just her delivery of making things feel normal and like we can talk about it while acknowledging that even if you do that, your kid isn't going to want to always talk about it with you in the moment that you want them to. But again, we see like, I think Jean has laid the foundation so that when Otis really does need her or when he wants to invite her in, he like does tell her about like when he has his panic attack, when him and Lily are trying to have sex, like he's like, go get my mom or telling her about Maeve at the end. Like, I think there's good work that's been done by Jean in laying that foundation. So some good things and some bad things in the way that she delivers those sexual messages. And yeah, I really like Jean sometimes. I think they do a really good job of making Jean like, uh, like you react to her and like, wow, you know, that's really interesting or what, what an interesting character, or like what a great job she's doing talking that way. And then she'll just like do something that'll completely reverse all the good things she does sometimes, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. Yep. But I also just wanted to mention as a therapist from an ethical standpoint, what Otis was doing was not a good idea. And Gene and him talk about this, but I do have to say he's got some skills. He does a pretty good job for the most part, like in terms of like how he is able to kind of like be there for people and kind of like, just kind of like help them feel more comfortable with who they are. Like, I think he did a really good job with that and not in a way that um, I'd expect from a teenager. Mm -hmm. So any, any final thoughts about Otis before we move on? Well, let's get to Maeve. So she's probably one of the other kind of like most seen character, the one that probably have the most to talk about. So Duchess, we'll start with you this time. You know, thinking about Maeve's experience, and obviously she's kind of a rebel against society type. So what were your kind of impressions of her? What do you see from her? And how do you see her kind of sexual development happen through all that she kind of goes through over the course of the show? 
Well, like I mentioned earlier, there are a few studies that show that girls tend to lose social social points, social prowess. I'm not sure how you would really want to phrase that, but they tend to lose social status, I guess would be the best way to put it, as they become sexually active. And while we would like to believe that our sex lives are private, they're definitely not. In high school, people talk, rumors get around. And Maeve becomes a very early victim to this effect. She has that rumor early on that she gave a blowjob. And while it wasn't a true rumor, she then takes on the cockbiter nickname for the rest of the show. And while it's tragic in a way, I think it gives Maeve freedom that her peers aren't able to experience because having already kind of lost a lot of the social status gives her a degree of sexual agency that her friends don't enjoy. She's able to be a true version of herself sexually. She's able to explore without as many consequences because she already dealt with the consequences when she didn't even do anything. So I think that gives her a lot of freedom. And that's why she's able to start the sex therapy practice with Otis. Not a good idea, not encouraging it. But I think that freedom that she experienced from a loss in social status is what allowed her to do that. I also think there may be some effect. No one has studied this yet. I hope to eventually have time and energy and money to study this. But I suspect there may be effect of women who are from very low socioeconomic backgrounds and very high socioeconomic backgrounds have greater sexual agency than those who are kind of in the middle. There may be less to lose on either end of the extremes where in the middle, there's a bit more social status to lose. So she may in a way, benefit from her social status in that she has a freedom to explore without losing status. Yeah, so I think that's just interesting in itself where we think about, you know, this very negative experience where this rumor was spread about something that didn't happen and then the social ramifications of that in terms of how she was treated, certainly having a lot of negative effects um, in terms of like not being a very pleasant thing to go through. But also it sounds like, you know, there could have been some positive thing that came out of it, even you know, unintended or not, that allowed her to kind of like be a little more comfortable in terms of who she is and not worry so much about having to lose status. I think that's definitely true. And I'm sure it would be very traumatizing to go through that. I personally went through something very similar, but Maeve handles it very well. Instead of dwelling on the fact that she's lost social status, she uses it to move pretty freely through the school socially and explore her sexuality with multiple partners without the fear of losing further status. Yeah. And it's hard to say, you know, how much of that uh, experience or her previous experience that she talks about and a couple other points played into that and how much of that is kind of like, you know, her kind of personality in itself as well is very kind of like almost, it's a very like screw you society kind of a thing. And I think that in itself is interesting to explore because, you know, that could be really opening experience because if you're like you know like screw that screw what the expectations that people have of me are that's really empowering and freeing but also it's like if i don't have these expectations i don't have these like rules to follow you know what do i do and that can be difficult too. kind of like have to like create that for yourself Certainly. And I think some people would handle it better than others. And Maeve clearly navigates it beautifully, but I'm not sure that every character in the show would have. So while it could be a positive experience, and it seems to have been a positive experience overall for Maeve, it may not have been for some of the others. Absolutely. Definitely. Also, just one side note, I really like the music in the show, but just speaking to, I guess I can't speak to Hollywood since this is not an American show. Can we just retire the song rebel girl it's a great song love it 
Bikini Kill's great. They have other songs. Let's not make let's not make it a cliche. You're making it a cliche. Anyway, moving on. Um, Shelby, do you have any other thoughts thinking about uh, Maeve's character, either on stuff that Duchess has talked about, or just kind of like additional thoughts you have uh, as we learn more about Maeve through the seasons? Yeah, it doesn't show you know how Maeve was raised specifically around like how people like important adults talk to her about sexuality, but. We know that she like reads a lot of critical feminist literature and I'm curious if like, I'm sure that that also helped bring some ideas to her of like, she also has that trauma of like, I have to fend for myself because there aren't adults who are taking care of me. And so I'm just curious how like, if that being able to read those like feminist writers and like thinking about those topics and then integrating them into how she's surviving where she's at. And I'm also curious if like that attitude of like screw society and like, I don't need to care what other people think about me is also like a trauma response of like, I, you know, like I can't rely on other people. And so therefore I am going to, you know, take care of myself and not care what other people think. I think that my favorite, one of my favorite scenes with Maeve was when they, it was in season three when they're doing the new SRE curriculum and they're splitting up the boys and the girls groups. And just like, oh, I just love the depiction because that is how sex ed unfortunately goes a lot of times where it's like, we first of all, we split up by gender, which is not helpful. And it can be exclusionary to people who don't fit in the binary And then we also, the like women are more often taught the like shamey moralistic messages (laughs) and like the scare tactics of let's watch a video of a woman getting pregnant. And I just always think of Amy when she's like, oh, your poor vagina. Like that's like her response to that. Uh, Like, yes. And then after that, you know, everyone's scared. But anyway, I love that Maeve stands up in that lesson and is like, no, this is not okay. This is not helpful. This is shamey. And she gets kicked out of class for doing it. But I just really appreciated Maeve in that moment being able to stop and say, no, this is not okay. And she was right. That was not okay. And it wasn't good sex ed to begin with. Yeah. And with Maeve too, she's so intelligent. She's so well read on all these topics. And I like that you brought up like the feminist literature and how that plays a role in how her ability to navigate things that almost kind of like it allows her to kind of overcome some of these other things in terms of like the experience with trauma you talked about in terms of not having necessarily caregivers that were reliable. And then the situation we talked about in terms of her developing the nickname as well. So uh, Duchess, do you have any final thoughts on May before we move on? I feel like there's so much to talk about with these characters, but I want to make sure we talk about lots of them. Yeah, I mean, they're such complex characters, so it's hard to find an ending point. But I think we've covered the important stuff with Maeve and Otis at this point. Yeah, she's great. There's so much good stuff with her. She's definitely one of my favorite characters to follow. But speaking of favorite characters to follow, let's talk about Eric, because he's one that just warms my heart. So we'll start with Shelby this time. You know, we see Eric really, he's out right away we don't have a coming out story which i think is kind of unique in media sometimes we see a lot of like all right we have a gay character they need to have a coming out thing was he's already out it's already kind of like known even within his family well you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it to you and just kind of uh wherever you kind of want to start in relation to eric we definitely see him kind of go through a lot over the course of the three seasons so what where do you want to start what do you want to kind of like um discuss when it comes to him 
Well, first of all, I can't think about Eric without like a huge smile coming to my face because he's just like the most lovable character ever. And it's absolutely destroys you when you see him experiencing a hate crime and going through some really hard stuff. I paid a lot of attention to like Eric and his dad's relationship in the first season. And his dad, you know, we see like throughout the first season, his dad is saying like, don't go out dressed like that. It's not safe for you to like go out dressed like that. At one point, he tells him he needs to toughen up if he wants to like live in a world and like express himself the way he wants to. And then at the end of that season, his dad, you know, like kind of opens up and is like, Oh, and I came here as an immigrant, like all I wanted to do was to fit in. And his dad experienced firsthand, like how unsafe it was not to fit into society. And so now seeing his son, like intentionally kind of going against the grain of like, what we would think of as like traditional, masculine expression feels really threatening to his dad. And I think that was a really cool depiction of like his dad opening up about like where he was coming from, because it really was like his dad's trauma. Um, and I like the way I can't remember the author's name, but it's the author of my grandmother's hands, which I highly recommend. Um, it's a book, but um, the author talks about how we blow our trauma through other people. And I think that's kind of what I saw Eric's dad doing was how he like, had this trauma of not fitting in and then was trying to protect Eric from the same negative consequences. And it looks different for them in different ways. But I thought that was a really good depiction of how us as parents, when we're talking to our kids about sexuality or attraction or bodies, like our trauma comes out when we do that. And one thing that I get upset about is when researchers or other people just say like, come on, parents, you need to do a better job talking to kids about sex. And then like, the end, you know, it's like, okay, well, can we acknowledge that as human beings, we've all grown up in a world where we probably experienced shame or worse around sexuality. And now you're asking me to like, give perfect sex ed to my kid, like, that's just not going to happen. So acknowledging that like growth and healing that parents, you know, have to go through to work through some of their stuff, as they're talking to their kids about these topics, I think was depicted really well with Eric in that season. Yeah. The reactions from Eric's dad specifically is something that, you know, anecdotally I've seen before for parents who have a gay child or lesbian child in terms of part of me is like still figuring this out. Part of me really wants to be accepting, but part of me is really scared for my child. And I don't know how to express that in a helpful way. And a lot of times those things that you know, acting out of that fear, acting out of that trauma, acting out of those experiences are causing more harm than good. But because it's like coming from our own experience and coming from our own trauma as parents, it's really hard to kind of like do that. And that's, you know, for a lot of situations, it's definitely something that, you know, when I work as a supervisor working with therapists that I have to kind of like, no, it's, it's not just the parents need a parent better. Like they're going through stuff. They have their own stuff. They have their own experiences. Like They have fears. They have fears of thinking that they're bad parents. They have fears of doing the wrong thing. They have fears of something happening to their child. Like these are all very normal experiences. And it's indicative of a loving parent. It just sometimes, you know, when we act out of fear, when we act out of our trauma responses, sometimes we might act in ways that aren't as helpful. So I'm glad you kind of like turned that to thinking about, you know, for all of us and thinking about Eric's dad and thinking about how that can relate to us and like what are the things that we've been through. 
that might influence us and how we relate to other people or how do we influence us as parents and things like that. So I'm really glad you kind of related those two things. I think that's really important. Yeah. And not to minimize at all the harm that kids experience, right? Like it's a, it's, you're holding both at the same time. Absolutely. Which makes me think of that raccoon short at the beginning of Encanto. If you haven't seen it, go watch it and then think about what I said while you're watching it. I've heard really good things about Encanto. I have watched it, but it was right after I got boosted. And I very distinctly have this memory that I think is true of my wife saying, do you want to watch Encanto? And I said, no. And then before I knew it, Encanto was on. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. And I could not follow the movie. It had nothing to do. Like, I just was not in the right headspace just because I was, I had a fever and I just was not able to follow anything. So I'm sure it's a good movie. I have not, I don't know anything that happened. Yes, that is another great <laughs> podcast episode. It deserves its whole episode of intergenerational trauma. I'll have to watch it again because I've heard really good things about it. But I, I watched it and I was like, I don't, I don't know what happened. So <laughs> anyway, Duchess, did you have any thoughts on uh, either what we're talking about or, or any thoughts about Eric in particular? Yeah, I kind of want to jump on to the, the intergenerational trauma conversation. And I think that there's certainly a pattern with Eric and his dad where his dad experienced the consequences of being different and how that affects Eric. But I think there may also be an intergenerational trauma aspect to how women are educated about sex and sexuality. I think, you know, right now we're dealing with the consequences of purity culture and how there's an entire generation of girls and women who are struggling sexually. And it's probably because purity culture was a knee-jerk reaction to perhaps negative social consequences of greater sexual freedom, which I am all for greater sexual freedom, but without negative consequences. So I think that this generational trauma goes beyond just Eric and his experiences, but to culture as a whole. That's a really good point. You said something, and I'm trying to remember what it was that uh, triggered a thought. Oh, it's something that I've heard before. Specifically, I've heard it about sex workers, but it could just be for individuals with greater sexual freedom in general. It's like, oh, a person shouldn't do that because other people will treat them badly. It's like, well, maybe if we just didn't treat them badly, there wouldn't be these negative consequences for greater sexual freedom. I don't know how no one's made that jump yet, or I'm, I'm not no one, but like, I'm, sure, I'm not sure how those people don't make that jump yet, but it's something that I've certainly seen a lot in the world. I don't know how they live with that cognitive dissonance. It's like, they should have greater freedom, but I'm personally going to punish this one. <laughs> Makes yeah. sense. <laughs> The thing that I hear the most is like they shouldn't have they shouldn't act in that way because they'll give negative feedback. It's like just don't just don't be that person. Just don't give them negative feedback. Problem solved. And stand up for people and stand against uh, people who go against that. Anyway, uh, any other thoughts related to Eric as you're thinking about it, Shelby? I mean, there's a whole storyline of him. You know, like oh, okay, I guess I do want to hit on one thing. Um, he's feeling a lot of like he experiences like the hate crime and is assaulted and then gets really withdrawn and doesn't like express himself the way he usually does. And then there's this really powerful moment where he goes to church, which in a lot of cases, like religious trauma and churches have done a lot of harm to queer people. And it also can help like in affirming congregations, it like can help queer people feel accepted. And so I just really liked when Eric goes to church and thinking about how like important adults like socializes and the I don't know if it's a pastor or reverend or what his title is, but he like goes up to Eric and says, "You're always welcome here." And then Eric has this moment where he really like accepts that like part of his family culture and religion and like makes it a meaningful like integrates it into his queer identity and like 
finds a lot of meaning in that. And then later on, he like brings Raheem to church with him when they're dating and like loves like going to Nigeria and all that. So I just felt like that was a powerful depiction of like what accepting affirming religious groups can do. And honestly, I wish that was the norm in any like religious group. And I just love as a media portrayal that they don't go for the low hanging fruit, right? They don't go for the, oh, church and gay character. Oh, this is going to be hard for him or culture that we generally think of as not um, being very progressive and gay character. Like, you know, this is something that we need to, we need to hit or whatever. They kind of like turned that on its head in a way and talked about how culture and church and all these things can play a really helpful role Mm -hmm. um, in terms of him and his identity building. And then just, you know, it was definitely a very quick turnaround for him. They let it linger for a couple episodes after the hate crime in terms of him kind of withdrawing and uh, dressing differently. And I believe he punched Adam in the face. That's something I remember. That's something that happened. And just going through it and just my, I was just like, my heart was hurting the entire time. I don't know if you guys remember which storyline was happening at the same time. I think it was something related to Lily and Otis at the same time. I don't know if that's right. But there was some like funny storyline going on at the same time. And they were going back and forth. And I just couldn't handle the two things. Mm. Anyway, but what I'm glad they kind of like got to a, um, a point where he like found his identity quickly. But, you know, in, in reality, it might not be that, you know, that easy for someone going through such a traumatic event. Denzel, I'm not sure if you're just someone I know who um, is very much an identity researcher thinking about season one and Eric, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, it was just so long ago that I don't want to, to misspeak on any of the, the events and experiences that were there, particularly since, you know, those experiences and those socialization processes are like such a foundational piece and the meaning making behind it. And so I don't want to misrepresent that by my um, potentially false recollection of those experiences. Okay. So that's fine. If we want to leave that in the recording, I think that's a, a good explanation of, of identity development in general. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You know, you, you talked about it without talking about it. There you go. That's a, that's a skill in itself. I think I watched it. So it's one step forward, right? So at least we got there. I did actually watch it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're familiar. All right. So any other thoughts on Eric before we move on? I just want to say that one thing that I love about the whole show, not just in respect to Eric, but also in respect to Adam and Ola, is the show. A lot of shows have a queer identifying character and they make them too perfect to the point where it's contrived and unbelievable. But I love that sex education makes each of the queer characters flawed and real and relatable. So that even if you are not going through the same struggles as they are, they're relatable in some way. And I think that's a really progressive stance that they decided to take. That's huge. And the reason they can do that is because they don't just have one queer character. Right. If you have one queer character, everything that character does is saying something about queer people. Whereas if you, you know, have a representative sample of people in your television show or movie, like every time Eric does something, it's not making a statement about gay men. Every time Ola does something, it doesn't make a statement about, uh, I think she identified as pansexual. I think that's correct. Yeah. Pansexual people. It doesn't make any statements about it. It's just. They're out there living their lives and they're individual characters and we see the nuance to them. So I'm really glad you brought that up because that's huge because so many of the TV shows that I've seen where this is problematic is, okay, you only have one queer character. Therefore, 
if you make them do anything flawed, you're making a commentary about it. And that could have easily happened if Eric was the only queer character, but they had lots of other queer characters that they did a good job of portraying. I don't know. Any thoughts about Eric's relationships? I don't know if anyone has any thoughts there. He dates uh, Raheem and then the whole thing with Adam, which we can get to later. Uh, we talk about Adam and then he kind of uh, ends up breaking up with Adam at the end after um, having kind of a experience in Nigeria. Any thoughts or not really? I don't have a ton of thoughts, but I do really appreciate the like, it feels very, it doesn't have to be adolescence, but like adolescence, emerging adulthood, like, you know, we're like dating different people and learning new things about ourselves along the way. And ultimately, like, Eric learned that he wanted to be with someone who was more out and like more like comfortable with being out and doing like gay things for lack of a better word you know and I think just seeing Eric learn as he's with Raheem and Adam and I'm sure we'll continue to learn with you know whoever else he like decides to get involved with in later seasons potentially I thought that was just I I don't know that made made me feel happy just seeing like these are what teenagers are going through like learning different things about themselves yeah, my only comment is that I'm mad that um, the show made me care about Adam's feelings when he broke up with them because I didn't want to care about Adam at all. And oh. then by the time it was over, I was like, I feel sad for Adam. Here I am feeling sad for a person that I never liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the show did get a job of that. <laughs> yep. All right, so let's move on. And we're going to talk about, uh, just because I got to make the order for this and it's one of my favorite characters, even though um, maybe, maybe they don't have as many lines or storylines as other characters. But let's talk about Lily because I think she's such a fun character in general and uh, one of my favorites. So Duchess, we'll give you the place to start here in thinking about Lily. And obviously Lily does have some sexual functioning issues in terms of vaginismus. So we can start with that. You can just talk about kind of her, um, how she presents at the beginning as being very sex forward, very forward, uh, I think is the, uh, I don't know how else to put that, uh, but just kind of how we see her at the beginning and then through her development as well. Yeah, I found that really interesting, actually, how Lily is experiencing what appears to be idiopathic vaginismus while still being quite sex forward. But we sort of learn about that later into the third season. They kind of explain some of the background. But the first thing I want to say about Lily is honestly, she should have gone to see a gynecologist about her vaginismus to make sure there was no underlying medical condition. And I think that's a place where the show really fell short is they had a great opportunity to educate people about sexual health physicians and that there are physicians that are there to help both adults and adolescents be sexually fulfilled physiologically. And I think they'd kind of touch on it with the dilators when She shows those at some point, but I think they could have gone more in depth on that storyline. But it does seem to me that her vaginismus is probably idiopathic based on things that happen later in the series. So if we get to season three, we're looking at Lily gets in trouble. Real quick, sorry, do you mind defining idiopathic for the audience as well? Oh, sorry, yeah. Idiopathic means that it exists in the absence of any underlying medical conditions. So it's sort of a very clear problem that someone has, but there's no explanation. But I think they don't make it clear that her vaginismus is idiopathic early on. And I don't know if it's because they didn't have the storyline written out fully or whatever reason. But by season three, we actually see where Lily gets reprimanded for her sex positivity and how forward she is sexually by her mother and kind of said, you know, essentially nice girls don't do this. And that's where I sort of had that light bulb moment of, ah, it may be idiopathic. 
because I'm starting to wonder if it's a fight or flight response to the good girls don't have sex, good girls don't talk about sex. And that's kind of where I focus my research is, are we having people having idiopathic sexual dysfunction because they're conditioned that quote unquote good girls don't do these things. And then they have a fear response that is physical pain. And I think that's probably what's happening with Lily. But again, I do think they should have shown on the show her exploring that with a gynecologist. Now, her alien fetish, I can't speak to. Um, I think it's a very interesting fetish. I wish we knew someone who did research on fetishes because I would love to learn more about Lily myself. But I love her as a character. She's so intriguing. And what I love so much about her in terms of what we see from her is, and I don't know if this is the same impression you guys got, but when she writes the stories and she talks about the stories themselves, she almost doesn't see it as like being overtly sexual. It's just kind of like part of the story. I don't know. I just find that interesting about her in the sense that it's just kind of like for her, it's just kind of like this fun story mechanism. It's not something that's like, she's not writing it for the sense of being erotica or being like for something to people to read to get off. She's doing it because it's something that's like interesting to her and it's part of like the overall storyline. I just think that's super fun. I think that goes back to the conversation we had earlier about shame versus privacy. And it's not shameful. She's not making it shameful, but people are so uncomfortable with sex and sexuality that they try to push their shame onto her, even though they could say maybe these are readings that would be more comfortable private. Instead of just saying that and accepting that there's no real erotica about her writing, they push the shame onto her. Yeah, definitely. And the Romeo and Juliet interpretation was so interesting. If they had done a spinoff where they just showed me the entirety of that Romeo and Juliet representation, I would watch that. So uh, if anyone's on making that, uh, please do. I find that very fascinating. I want to see where that's going. Netflix, if you're listening, we all want to see the full play. We want to see the full play. Uh, we'll start a um, something online to get, what do you call that? Where you, a petition online. We'll start a petition online to get, to get the full Romeo and Juliet experience. So Shelby, do you have any other thoughts on uh, Lily or anything else as Duchess has been talking? Yeah, it's... It's interesting because we see that like flashback of her mom, you know, talking to her like girl girls don't do this. But then like Lily persists in like we see her like obviously as an adolescent. So I would be curious to talk to Lily and ask her, you know, like, I'm sure this shame and these messaging is affecting you, but like you're still very out about what you're creating. And so I think that's interesting. I also, uh, one of my least favorite scenes from the whole series is when Hope has the three students like come up in front of the whole school. And I don't remember what Lily's sign says, but she put like shame signs on them and something like I wrote something dirty or filthy or something and like made Lily wear it around school, which is like horrible, like absolutely horrible. Um, But then I feel like that was... And there's a moment where she like takes off her like cool alien-esque makeup and because Hope is telling them they have to conform to the dress code. Um, and then people are like, wow, you actually look pretty. And she's like, I didn't know. I Did I really look that weird before? And so like, I'm like curious if Lily was like so authentically herself that she just didn't notice. But then I also, I don't know. I guess I'm still, I don't know how to make sense of that but then I really like what you were saying Duchess about like how that negative messaging like can affect you physiologically and I've heard a lot of stories of people who grow up with really intense high demand high control religions and how 
that are like, don't have sex until you're married. And then like when it comes time when they're married and they want to have sex, there's like a lot of issues about like being able to enjoy sex because they've internalized these messages of no, this is bad. 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 And then all of a sudden like, Oh no, it's good. And then it's like, you're both like, even if like you maybe cognitively can't recognize it, there like are physiological things that are happening or maybe it is on a cognitive level as well. But anyways, just the shame of like seeing Lily really internalize the shame. And then she like, gets rid of her alien stuff and like takes off her like makeup and stops doing her hair and stops sharing things and doesn't go to school like I just how dare an adult like tell an adolescent to stop being themselves and to stop I don't know just just to shame you you know and to get everyone else on board like she wasn't allowed no one was allowed to socialize with her Mm -hmm. and like I really, thought, and I don't know if you guys got this impression, I thought they were building up to a self-harm scene with her. I thought that was coming at some point. I was pretty convinced Lily was going to attempt suicide. She didn't. Yeah. I'm glad mm-hmm. she didn't. Yeah. It was, my heart broke for her through that whole, uh, multiple episode um, yeah. situation. And, you know, I don't want to make excuses for Hope because she's a terrible person. But I wonder if there was like jealousy involved of where Lily is just so fully, wholly herself and I mean, that's amazing, especially at that age. And why shame that? Shame on you for shaming that. And I can't help but wonder if Hope was just jealous that she couldn't be so holy herself. Yeah. And yeah, like, I feel like a lot of us as adults, like, have to put in so much work to get to where Lily was to be like, so like, happy and comfortable with herself and know what you love and go for it, that it's very upsetting to see someone take that away from her. And I think this show does a good job in the third season, especially of showing the pressure that schools are under to like, you're the sex school, you need to like, crack down. Okay, so I'm gonna use all these like, very like militaristic authoritarian ways of punishment to like get this accomplished. And then the teachers are like, this is bad sex ed, but we're gonna get fired if we let you ask questions about this video that we're showing like, it, I don't know, just like, this is why we have to intervene on a policy level as well, because schools are under pressure and lose funding in certain states for talking about anything beyond abstinence. So there's so much going on. And sometimes it only takes one voice or one complaint to shut down or stop some kind of attempt at sex education. Shelby, I don't know if you've experienced anything like that. But yeah, sometimes it only takes a few things for administration to want to do that, right? Like we have to like take control. We have to like make sure that the reputation of the school in the the sense of sex education, where Hope was so caught up in trying to change the narrative around the school that it ended up backfiring. Mm -hmm. I just find it interesting that they never follow the literature. They never follow the literature on this. If you read the literature, it's very clear that comprehensive sex education delays the onset of sexual debut and it decreases the risk of pregnancy it decreases the risk of stis and they never follow the literature if you want to change the landscape of your school if you don't want to be known as the sex school you have to be comprehensive mm-hmm. yep yeah it's a big cultural narrative that uh we're going to keep having to try to shift over time and i keep waiting for that to happen uh, at some point because i teach human sexuality for some pushback on that Uh, from students or otherwise and haven't had anything usually students you know college students are pretty open to some of these things but 
there's definitely lots of existing narratives about if you talk about sex in a certain way or just kind of talk about it in a way that you know talks about how it exists, um, <laughs> it can be harmful. Yeah, which is, I think, where Otis sees like a vacuum in information, like Otis and Maeve are like, people need good sex information, which again, Otis is not a licensed therapist and should not be running this clinic. But <laughs> um, uh, we have licensed therapists for a reason, but like they needed information and weren't getting it. So yeah. like, it's not like they don't know what sex is until they like, hear about it at school. Like they like, yeah. I will say that while he shouldn't have been doing that, I think Jean made a beautiful point about we don't bill for conversation Mm -hmm. because I think having open conversations about sex with your peers is healthy. He just shouldn't have been billing for it. Yes, Yes. exactly. That's a really good distinction. I'm glad you made that distinction because if he was just giving advice or kind of like having informed conversations that were kind of opening up sexuality, that certainly wouldn't be an issue, but billing for it. Yeah, that's where it's a problem. Most of those conversations would have been perfectly fine as friendly conversations. He crossed the line when he billed for it. So Mm -hmm. I think that was a really nice distinction they made. And I do think that we need to encourage young people to talk openly about sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love seeing like when Amy makes her vulva cupcakes and she's like, if they ask about the wobbly bits, it's because all vulvas are normal. And we all like wobbly bits are normal, you know. Like that, and then Raheem teaching people about douching, and like, yeah, everything oh, yeah. Otis said, if he wasn't billing for it. And we know that I actually just, this paper is under review right now, and hopefully it will get published. But we found that the young adults in our study whose parents weren't talking to them about sex, or if they were, but only telling them wait, like wait to have sex, and that's the only thing they told them, then friends and media were taking it a step further and saying, like, all right, here's some sex positive messages. Here's some messages about STI, pregnancy, and sexual violence avoidance. Like peers usually go a step beyond what parents are talking about because young people need to know this information and they know they can get it from their peers and not from their parents. But then are peers giving good information? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like the sex king who is giving out horrible oh oh like, <laughs> like do not listen to anything that person says steve but, was that his name or am i making that I don't up remember, uh, steve's amy I can't remember his name. no that was amy no was it it steve? was because steve did date amy like that was uh, one of them, oh right? that's true but i think steve is a cute one that has the goat oh you're right steve's the good one yeah steve's the good one that amy dates you know what? i'm gonna see if i can find it while you're talking yeah we'll we'll call him the sex king for now because that's what he calls i don't want to call i don't want to call him that so <laughs> ironically <I refuse. laughs> you might want to cut this out but i i deeply doubt he ever touched a vulva to be honest with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah he he knows very little and shares very inaccurate information um but oh, yeah man. who are like if we're giving comprehensive sex ed to everyone then peers can be better supports for each other because they have that like basic understanding and i'm a huge proponent of also giving kids trustworthy online resources of like if you have a question we haven't covered or want to find out something here's a website that we trust that we want you to go to, you know, so media, parents, schools, friends, like there's so many avenues for good sex information that kids honestly need. Kyle was his name. Kyle, Kyle. Kyle. <laughs> Steve was a good character. I like Steve a lot. Um, yeah. I don't think we'll have time to talk about him, but he was adorable. But yes, Kyle was the one that uh, <laughs> the sex king or whatever he called himself. God, so okay. How moving on from him. <laughs> it's just so bad. 
All right, so we have a couple characters that I still want to talk about, and we're kind of running low on time, so we'll do a little bit quicker this time. But I do want to make sure we talk about Adam. So, Shelby, we'll start with you. Adam, we obviously see as kind of the headmaster's son. He's very problematic at the beginning. Somehow the show makes you care about him, even though he's just an awful person before that. And the show makes you feel for him later, but I had a lot of trouble coming around. Anyway, what are your thoughts just in terms of Adam, we learn a lot about his mom in the later season as well. So uh, what, what do you kind of see from Adam over the course of the show? Yeah, Adam, I feel like is another good example of when people blow their trauma through other people. And we learn more about his dad and how his dad was raised in the third season and his brother. As much as I love Jason Isaacs, his character is just awful. But yeah, seeing that like trauma being blown from Adam's grandpa to his dad to him and then him taking out other people and Adam, my heart just breaks for Adam seeing like uh, at the end after he, his dog gets an honorable mention for his debut in agility. And then he says to his mom, don't tell dad, he'll just be disappointed. I didn't win a real prize. Like my heart just like shattered into a million pieces. And we really see like Adam's uh, just like that, like not having unconditional love from a caregiver and feeling like you always are doing something wrong and that you always have to be perfect in order to receive love. Like love from his dad was very, very conditional. And, and Adam himself has had a lot of like internalized homophobia in the earlier seasons. And I think that at one point he told Allah, like, I have to prove I'm a real man. Like, even though I'm gay, I'm still a real man. And she's like, well, duh, like, masculinity has nothing to do with if you're gay or not. So there's like seeing him struggle through that and then making a lot of progress in the third season. And then, yeah, your heart just shattering because he tried so hard, but it still didn't work out with Eric. Yeah, I my heart definitely has grown a lot for Adam. And again, like we can see like what happened if we ask the question, what happened to you? which again, I recommend the book, What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry. I'm just throwing out all these recommendations today. I'll send you the info, but like asking what happened to you when we think about Adam makes sense why he treats other people poorly and it's not okay and he still causes harm to other people. And it was really conflicting for me when Eric and Adam, like what Otis said of like, he bullied you for years and now you're okay being in a relationship with him. like. I still feel as much as I love Adam, like that was, I still don't really know how I feel about that piece of it. So, yeah. I had a very similar experience. I think I hate watched the first few minutes of when Eric and Adam were on a double date with Ruby and Otis. (laughs) And I was like, why is this happening right now? I don't like any of this. But by the end of it, you like grow to like Ruby and you grow to like Adam more uh, through that process. But I think the point you made about Uh, Adam and his father kind of checks out again here, just like with Eric in terms of a lot of times. So when I work with parents as a therapist, a lot of times when parents see something going wrong, they either do one of two things, either like take their hands completely off or they tighten and tighten and tighten and tighten the boundaries to the point where, because it's, it's acting out of anxiety. The thing I'm doing is not working. I have to try harder. The things I'm doing not working. I have to try harder. I have to up the ante and the way that Adam's dad thinks about how to make things better. And we see Adam's dad go through some level of growth too, over the course of it. Um, He was definitely, I think the villain of season two, or as Adam, I think was more the villain of season one, but we see Adam's dad kind of 
in his own way, try to help in, you know, very unhelpful ways. And again, the worse it gets, the more he tries to like do things and the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When like what Adam really needed was unconditional love and acceptance and seeing Mrs. Sands, I think is her name and his mom at the agility trial stand up and cheer for him. I'm like, that's what you needed this whole time from adults was like unconditional love and support. And yeah, that's what you needed. And I wish you could have had that from your dad the whole time. Quick shout out to Mrs. Sands. Great character. I loved her a lot. But let's wrap up before I do. Now, just, do you have thoughts on Adam too? I wanted to give you an opportunity before I moved on to Amy. Controversially, I love Adam. And I think it's because of the growth that we see in him. But one thing that I want to point out is what bad relationship role modeling he had. Not only did he have, you know, a total lack of unconditional support from his father. Look at how his father treated his mother. And there's just no ground for a healthy relationship laid for him. So he has to go through so much growth to get to the point where he can be in a relationship with anyone that's healthy for either party because he doesn't know what a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. And his mom's so lovable, too. Like, she's just such a sweet lady and she cares about Adam so much. And she was really not asking for a lot. And the scene where Mr. Groff, I don't remember his first name, brings mangoes to her at the door is such a representation of stuff that you know i've seen a lot of of like just totally missing the boat (laughs) and (laughs) by so much but it it seems like it's a joke it seems like it's just like poking fun at this but that's not that far off from some people's experience where they are so um off in terms of like how to show love or show that you care and you know what adam's mom was looking for was just you know, more than mangoes, let's say. I just want to take a second to point out too, there's the scene where she comes in in um, lingerie and she's trying to seduce him. And he says, we're not 20 something anymore, something like that. And that is so terrible. That is so stigmatizing. People can still be sexually active and enjoy sex for the rest of their lives. And I just, I hate how stigmatizing that was. It's one of my favorite conversations to have when I teach human sexuality is that people, you know, over the age of 60 are still having sex and still enjoying sex. In fact, sexual satisfaction sometimes goes up. And I, this sounds like a joke, but I had a student raise their hand and say, does that mean my parents are having sex? And I told her, so I'm a good person. So I was like, your parents aren't. No, you're the only one whose parents are not having sex. Everyone else's (laughs) parents are. Because I just, she, she had to take it one step at a time. But like, there's very much that thought process, right? Like once you get older, you don't have sex, you're, your parents, your grandparents, the people that you know that are all there aren't having sex with, that's very much not the case. And, you know, sexual satisfaction certainly can increase over the lifespan as opposed to decrease as some people might think it does. So let's talk about Amy. She's another one of my favorite characters. So there's a couple things that we really should make sure we mention with Amy. And I think uh, we should definitely start off by talking about her experience on the bus. It would be impossible to talk about Amy and not mention that we wouldn't be doing a service to her character of the show or to people in general who are listening or the world or society. So let's start there. So Duchess, just your reflections on, you know, things that Amy went through and then her process in terms of healing after that. I think watching Amy get assaulted was, um, it was difficult to watch and it was, it was a very powerful scene. And one of the other most powerful scenes is when all the girls are in the library being told to figure out what you share in common. And they had all been sexually assaulted in some way. And I think one thing that stood out to me so much about Amy's case is that she didn't believe she had been sexually assaulted. 
Because women are so often told, if you're not penetrated, you haven't been assaulted. And I think the show did a really nice job of really reinforcing that, yes, that was assault. Yes, being, you know, having someone violate your space in that way is assault, even if they never put their hands on you. I think they did a really nice job showing that. And I like how they showed her going through that struggle, because I think so many women do go through that struggle. And I really like that they made a point to say almost every woman has experienced this. Absolutely. I'm glad you bring up this point because I do think that there becomes almost like a trauma Olympics thing where it's like, well, I didn't have this happen to me. So it's not that bad. Or other people might say that to someone who was assaulted. And it really doesn't need to be a comparison. Going through a traumatic event is traumatic. And the comparisons only serve to minimize our experience and not heal from that experience. But yes, I also really enjoyed the scene. And then since Ola had just been to Adam's demolition area, that they all got to go to the demolition area after, which is kind of a fun, cathartic experience. Shelby, is there anything that you wanted to mention in terms of uh, the assault that Amy went through on the bus? Yeah, just seeing the healing of like when they're in detention, sharing their stories, and they're just sitting in it with each other. They're saying like, I'm sorry that happened to you. They knew there was nothing they could do to fix it. Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. And then one of my favorite scenes is when they all are at the bus stop with her. They like wait at the bus stop for her and like go and get on the bus with her. Like that was such a powerful example of the support from others in your like healing journey. I thought that was a really beautiful scene. Yeah, I love that. That was such just like a heartwarming kind of experience to see that and getting on the bus with her and just kind of like being there for her. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it can be understated how important that support is in a situation like this, just from my experience as a therapist working with clients. So I'm pretty just, this is going to be a complete tangent. So I apologize. I'm pretty militant in this idea of like letting clients get somewhere on their own, as opposed to like me as the therapist saying something to them. And there is an experience where I just needed to tell the person, and this has actually happened several times, so where you just have to tell a person that it wasn't their fault, or you have to tell a person that what they went through was assault or traumatic, and you know the feelings are normal, and like just the power that comes from that from being a supportive presence, and you know all the research kind of bears us out if you are if a person who goes through a traumatic event is supported, the chances of developing PTSD later on is much lower. So just being able to be there for a person in a situation like that is something that I hope people can take away in their everyday life. If, you know, if you or if someone unfortunately goes through something, just if you can be there for them, be supportive, and how tremendously impactful that can be for a person. Mm-hmm. And how Amy, she felt like she still needed therapy after that. Like you can, like there's nothing wrong if like social support doesn't fix everything. Like sometimes. Like Amy needed to be able to go see Jean and talk through things and have Jean say, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve this. So, and that looks different for everyone, but you know, trauma affects us all differently. So we all need different things to heal. I think they made a couple interesting points with both Amy and Vivian in this respect where Amy's asking, you know, well, I smiled at the guy on the bus. I was friendly with the guy on the bus. And kind of puts the blame on herself. And then when Vivian tells her story of being assaulted at the pool, you know, her mother never lets her go back. And I think they really hammer in on this pattern where 
victims are supposed to be responsible for their assault and, you know, they're losing part of their lives. Yes, Amy eventually got back on the bus, but it took her a while. Vivian never went back to the pool when really it's the person who's the person doing the assault that should suffer the consequences. And unfortunately, it's disproportionately placed on the survivors. Absolutely. And I'm not really sure how to transition outside of that conversation, except to do it in an awkward fashion. So unfortunately, that's the way I'm going to do it. But another component that we definitely see with Amy is kind of her own, you know, before the assault happened, she kind of has this kind of like sexual awakening, just from Otis asking, what do you want? Like, what do you want? And then she kind of has to go through her own process. And she's still going kind of through that process post the assault. So I don't know, uh, Duchess, if you want to speak on either of those things as well. Yeah, I think Amy goes through an interesting learning experience where she's pretty sex positive and open with her sexuality, except she thinks it's for her male partner. She doesn't think about orgasming herself. She doesn't think about what she likes. It's all about performing for her partner. And I think a lot of women go through that because we're often taught, you know, good girls don't do this or good girls aren't interested. And then we don't think about what we want and what brings us joy. So I think it was really interesting watching her explore what she actually wanted. And I loved how supportive Steve was in saying that part of what turns me on is turning you on. I thought that was amazing. Men, please listen to that messaging. And then I really liked how she moved forward. And even after her assault, she worked on still not allowing her assault to stop her own growth. And it was hard. And, and, you know, Jean was a good support for her, but not abandoning her own sexuality because someone tried to take something from her. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said too about the socialization of men in terms of sexuality too. And her sexual partners before Steve were Kyle and Adam, right? That we know of. There could be others um, in there as well. But Adam being, you know, we learn later, has lots of trouble communicating, not really sure how to communicate things and being pretty self-centered, especially at that point in time. And then Kyle being just a, being the sex king in his own way, apparently. And just the way that we socialize men is like, it is supposed to be about, you know, getting off and it's supposed to be about you performing adequately, but it's not really about like this give and take communication. Um, it's not really the performance is usually talked about in a sense of like, are you good at sex? And the things that men are socialized to believe are good at sex often don't translate well to female sexual pleasure for those who are engaging in male-female sexual interactions. Usually it's socialized about like, again, big penises and going for a long time or uh, fast and hard or whatever, and not necessarily about the communicative aspect of it because you know, every person experiences things differently. And if you're not communicating with your partner, if you don't have those skills in terms of how to be sensitive to what your partner wants sexually and otherwise emotionally, like you're not going to achieve that level of like sexual performance. Uh, I'm trying to relate it back, but you definitely see that in terms of the difference between Adam, who's not a great communicator, and Kyle, who's very sexually misinformed, let's say, to be nice to him. And then Steve, who is more focused on the relationship and more focused on how do I relate to you and how do I sensitive to your needs? Another thing I really liked about Steve was his body positivity with Amy. She has that moment with um, Jean in the office where she worries about her labia not being perfect. And 
you know, Jean kind of reassures her that everyone's different. And then I just, I loved that when she started doing the vulva cupcakes and, you know, promoting that Steve was right there beside her and he was happy to say, oh, they're wobbly because they're different. I loved how he just jumped on board with that body positivity. And I love that Steve loved maths. He just loves maths. What a what an adorable <laughs> character he is. He's just perfect. He's such a sweetheart. Uh, I just, anyway. So any final thoughts on Amy or any of the character we talked about so far? Is there any characters or, or things that we didn't get a chance to mention that you're like, before we end, we need to talk about this one thing? Shame is not the answer. Um, providing accurate information and support and unconditional like love and acceptance. I mean, we don't owe anyone unconditional love and acceptance. Um, but like, I'm thinking as like a parent, like a, the caregivers, like providing your kids unconditional love and support. But yeah, that shame, shame isn't the answer. If you want to, you know, like crack down on student sexual activities or like, ask yourself why. And then also know that like shame is just gonna, you know, even if, oh, I guess I did want to point out the shamey scare tactic lesson where they are like shown all these like horrible videos of like when <laughs> that woman's vagina tearing while she was giving birth. Like it did have the desired effect in terms of like when Ruby and Olivia and Anwar like get out, they're like, we're never having sex again. And maybe that the educators are like, yes, that's exactly what we wanted you to get out of this. A, it's not realistic that they won't have sex again. And B, even if they're not having sex now, you've just instilled like a ton of fear and shame in them. And is that really what you want? Like, would you really rather have people not having sex, but having like a really negative sexual self-concept and fear and confusion around it? Um, or do you want to empower people to make choices that can like keep them as safe as possible and match with their own sexual values? That comes up a lot for parents and caregivers and also like anyone who's teaching about sex in school or a church or community. Definitely. Trying to shame someone into behaving a certain way. One usually doesn't work very well, but even if it does, it has lots of other negative consequences, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether it's around sex or otherwise, but certainly in the, um, in the realm around sex, there's already so much shame built around the topic in general. Mm -hmm. uh, any other final thoughts? All right. So just to kind of wrap up, let's, I thought a fun thing to discuss would be any examples of something that someone might have said to you or something you might have overheard or read on the internet or something of something, particular myth about sex that you heard someone say that they very much believe that could have been problematic. So if you have any examples of those, Duchess, you're already laughing. So why don't you start? <laughs> I have to. Um, I don't know if this kid was trolling me or if it was real. I laughed at him. I still feel bad about it, but he deserved it. He asked me if he was having anal sex with his partner and she farted when his testicles explode. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I honest to God, don't know if this kid was trolling or if he really had the question. I said, no, of course not. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. I don't have a good response to that. I just had a bunch of questions in my class recently that I was teaching and that there are a lot of questions that I didn't know of. And some of them, a couple I didn't know how to respond to, but they were I mean, not, not quite of that vein, but just like, I wouldn't even know how to respond to that one. <laughs> I think the laughter and no kind of covered it. I yeah. feel bad about <laughs> laughing, but how else do you respond? <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is maybe it was a joke, but hard to tell, I guess. 
Uh, you said you had two. Do you want to share your other one as well? So the other one I saw the other day on Twitter, and it was a group of EMTs. You may know one of the people I'm talking about. We're talking about um, training some new EMTs, including teenagers who wanted to join. And one of them asked if the penis was a bone, and that's why it was called a boner. That one's also... And that's the hard thing about this is like, you know, we want to laugh at, but also the sex education is so poor. The fact that that exists is such a, and that's, you know, I enjoy making that joke when I teach the class and point, I just taught about like, you know, the corpa uh, cavernosa and cavernosa uh, spongiosum. These are not, these are blood vessels. Like there's no bone in there despite the name. And I, I never get a laugh for saying that, but in my head I get a laugh, but yeah, there is certainly that belief that still exists, which uh, is unfortunate. Shelby, do you have any examples of myths that were especially... Um, yes. I'm also wondering if we have the same one, but go on. Oh, we probably do. So Eric and I had the same advisor. Um, <laughs> so you the same one. <laughs> uh, do you want me to spoil it or do you want to say... You go, you go, you go. Okay. She at one point was teaching and a student asked her... Or she was teaching about contraceptive methods and she gets to the end and a student is like, you forgot one. And she's like, Oh, no, what are you gonna say? Because I definitely covered all of them. And the student says, if you douche with Dr. Pepper after having sex, then you won't get pregnant. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, I hope you haven't tried that. Yes, douching, just avoid douching in general, but don't use Dr. Pepper, especially. (laughs) Don't put things in your vagina that are not sex toys or penises or fingers. (laughs) My favorite part about that story, too, is like the student was very adamant about Dr. Pepper. Like you couldn't use any other (laughs) pop. You couldn't use any other liquid. It had to be Dr. Pepper. And that was like the thing that did it. Okay. Coca-Cola, not going to work. No, not going to work. (laughs) That sounds like a wicked yeast infection waiting to happen. Oh, yeah. I don't have a vulva and I just shiver. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thank you to our editor, Sandra Lynn Paul. If you have your own podcast or would like to start a podcast and you need help with the editing, producing, or marketing of your podcast, you can find Sandra at sandralynco.com. That's S-A-N-D-R-A-L-Y-N-N-C-O.com. If you'd like to become a part of Relevation Nation and get daily updates that can help elevate your relationship, you can follow Relevate on Twitter at MyRelevate or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash myrelevate. See you next time.